Let's pray together. Father, as we come before you this morning and we are just saying these words, indeed we come and we pray that we would come with all of our heart, that we would exalt you, we would exalt Christ with all of our heart. That right now as we turn to your word and we seek to hear from you, may that be us, may our heart be yours. May Christ be ours in full. Help us, Lord, as we come, that we would recognize that you are God and you are holy and you are good and you are exalted. And we, as those who, if we know Christ, your spirit is within us. And we, as God's temple with your spirit in us, help us to exalt you, help us to worship you, help us to live for you in the world. Help us to be about your kingdom, about your glory, about our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. May you help us as we know that we alone here at Haven are not the only believers in the world. There are many, many saints stretched throughout America and throughout the nations. And so may they also live as those with the Spirit of God in them. And may they live and exalt you and worship you among the nations. May you be with our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ in Ukraine in Russia, in North Korea, in Afghanistan, and throughout the world and here in America, may we be about you. Even as so many temptations surround us and the world entices us, may we not be about those things, but may we be about Christ. Amen. So help us to see that the wisdom of the world is May we look to him who is truly king, our king, Jesus Christ. And so be with us as we turn to your word this morning, that we would see just that. In Jesus' name, amen. If you would, go ahead and turn in your Bibles to the book of Esther. We'll be in Esther chapter 1, verses 10 through 22, this Lord's Day. So there are times in our lives when we look back over our lives and we find some interesting things. Perhaps seeing how things came together and even how it came together in ways that really maybe we did not anticipate you know, maybe a decision that you made, you know, a turn that you took, you know, a call that you did or didn't make. And how, without maybe with us not even knowing it, and how much more significant those things were than we thought at the time. You know, how they really even perhaps changed the trajectory of not just like an hour or 
you know, a week or a month or even a year of our lives, but have changed our lives and even made us into the people that we are today. You know, as I, as I do this, and maybe you do too, every so often you look back over your life and you, you, you see things like that. And I know as I do, I just kind of stand back and I, I wonder at all these things and even rejoice and praise God for his hand and his mercies that maybe I didn't see at the time, but now I see his hand all over the place. You know, I think of how I met Megan. You know, I, I took time in college, and Megan did not take time in college. I mean, she went to college, but she took an abundant of, abundance of classes, and she went through college very quickly and did well. Now, if I had went the normal pace, you know, and did all my classes and even more than enough classes like Megan did, you know, I might have missed her altogether. Like we may never have met at all. I mean, decisions, right? I mean, I don't know, God maybe sometime later would have introduced me to Megan, but just to say that if that had happened, I mean, there may have been no Megan in my life. Like right now, these children, our five children, none of those. Right now, today. I mean, who knows? I might not even be here right now. And so who knows how differently things would have been. And so like I said, how interesting it is as we look back over our lives and see how all of these things came together that you are where you are right now, today, in Huntsville, Alabama, or Madison, Alabama. What we see from Esther, and really throughout our whole Bibles, is that whether we know it or not, or even recognize it or not, God he is accomplishing his purposes in our lives and not for our glory, but for his glory. Amen. The book of Esther is putting the spotlight, God's sovereignty over life, even in those seemingly inconsequential things that we may take for granted. Like not going very quickly through college or not. It may seem inconsequential or even coincidental, yet God is sovereignly at work bringing about his purposes in your life, in my life, and throughout the world for his glory. And we certainly see that and find that in this book, in Esther, and in our verses this morning. And so let's look here then at these next verses in this book, beginning with chapter 1, verse 10. May the Spirit help us see and understand his word 
May he illuminate his word for us this morning. On the seventh day, when the heart of the king was merry with wine, he commanded the human, Biztha, Harbana, Bigtha, and Abaktha, Zethar, and Carcass, the seven eunuchs who served in the presence of King Ahasuerus, to bring Queen Vashti before the king with her royal crown, in order to show the peoples and the princes her beauty, for she was lovely to look at. But Queen Vashti refused to come at the king's command delivered by the eunuchs. At this, the king became enraged, and his anger burned within him. And then the king said to the wise man who knew, wise men who knew the times, for this was the king's procedure toward all who were versed in law and judgment, the men next to him being Karshina, Shethar, and Matha, Tarshish, Merez, Marcina, and Mimukin, the seven princes of Persia and Medea, who saw the king's face and sat first in the kingdom. According to the law, what is to be done to Queen Vashti because she has not performed the command of King Hazarus delivered by the eunuchs? Then Mimukin said in the presence of the king and the officials, not only against the king has Queen Vashti done wrong, but also against all the officials and all the peoples who are in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus. For the queen's behavior will be made known to all women, causing them to look at their husbands with contempt, since they will say King Ahasuerus commanded Queen Vashti to be brought before them, and she did not come. This very day the noble women of Persia and Medea, who have heard of the queen's behavior, will say the same to all the king's officials, and there will be contempt and wrath in plenty. If it please the king, let a royal order go out from him, and let it be written among the laws of the Persians and the Medes, so that it may not be repealed, that Vashti is never again to come before King Ahasuerus. And let the king give her, her royal position to another who is better than she. And so when the decree made by the king is proclaimed throughout all his kingdom, for it is vast, all women will give honor to their husbands, high and low alike. And this advice pleased the king and the princes, and the king did as Mamukin proposed. He sent letters to all the royal provinces, to every province in, his, in its own script, and to every people in its own language, that every man be master in his own household and speak according to the language of his people. Amen. Now these verses, they come as a bit of a surprise and a real contrast to how this book began. So in the opening verses, you'll remember if you were here, or if you've read the book of Esther in the past, you remember the king, what did he do? He made his grand kind of pompous entrance. You know, here is King Ahasuerus, king of Persia, ruler over 127 provinces. So essentially, it opens with him with saying that here is the king over the whole world. 
see his greatness. And as we read those verses in chapter 1, verses 1 through 9, and even the people there are meant to gasp at the greatness of King Ahasuerus and his great kingdom. So if you remember there, we found that he held this massive feast, right? How long was it? A few days? <laughs> no, right? 180 days or six months. And why? To show his greatness. <laughs> wow, incredible. So chapter 1, verse for while he showed the riches of his, his royal glory and the splendor and pomp of his greatness for many days. That was the reason for the feast. And he didn't just give one feast. He gave two. <laughs> and the second one, we would say is shorter. But as we learned, it really is not that, I mean, it is shorter Seven days. But, I mean, how many of us haven't seven-day parties, you know? I mean, I don't think any of us can think of, maybe, well, maybe some of you can, I don't know, of a seven-day-long feast or party. And so, yeah, it was shorter, but not that much shorter. So if you were there, you would just likely, as you're going through the six months and seven days, just get caught up with it all, you know, of the king and his greatness and the greatness of his kingdom. However, here is where we have a twist in the story. And Esther introduces us to this turn. It began with the king's greatness but now it continues with the king's greatness defied. So it's the seventh day of the second feast. Now imagine the scene. Months had went by with this all-encompassing atmosphere of celebration. Day after day you're there, people celebrating, drinking, and revering the king. And you're seeing it all around you. He gives his word. And everybody, they drop everything. And they do it. He says it, there go the servants. He says it, there go the peoples. At the word of the king. And so it makes complete sense. That at this moment. With all that going on. That the king was glad. So we're told in verse 10, the king was merry with wine, which means, yes, that he was in a pleasant mood, but he was also very likely a good deal inebriated. Maybe not totally drunk, you know, out of his mind. But the point is, is that his judgment at this moment likely was not at its best. And so during this time, in this moment, this great king, he commands his seven eunuchs to tell the queen to come. So on this last day of the feast, 
perhaps as a way to kind of top it off, you know, all this greatness going about. And he probably thought to himself, you know, and look at all these people here, you know. I mean, everyone is here honoring me. I mean, this is great. And really, he would only be saying that to himself, right? He would go like, isn't that right? I mean, they would probably say yes, but they're kind of thinking, well, yeah, but it's kind of much, don't you think? I mean, but he's, think, he's, he's seeing all this, thinking that, and now he's perhaps thinking to himself, well, well, why don't I up the ante, you know? Why don't I go even higher and make it even greater? I, you know what I'll do? I'll tell my queen to come. And she can come and display her great beauty. And the people will only want to honor me more. They will see how great I am. And how even the queen, my own queen, she stops everything. And she comes at my bidding. It'll be marvelous. You know, hey, where are the seven eunuchs? You know, so, come over here. I have something to tell you. I have a command for you to give. However, this is just where the twist comes in, doesn't it? He has another thing coming. <laughs> and we see that here. We see that the king, he was glad. But he's glad no more. <laughs> Why? Queen Vashti. Tells him one word, no. <laughs> oh boy. As we come to the Bible, and even the book of Esther, we may not often think of the Bible when we think of humor. But Esther is certainly giving us some humor here. And it won't be the last time we'll find humor in the book of Esther. And so Esther is making this humorous kind of contrast. While everyone is there singing the king's tune, you know, how great you are. While everyone is doing his bidding in the midst of all of that, his gloating, his pomp, and his power being on display, his own queen won't listen to him. Are you really that great, king? Ahasuerus, now like I said, you may not be falling over in your seat laughing, but this is certainly humor within our Bibles. Verse 12, but Queen Vashti refused to come at the king's command delivered by the eunuchs. Now we're not told why she refuses. It's just left at that. Now, there are various ideas of perhaps the reason why, of why maybe, you know, she didn't come, why she refused. And among these various reasons is one, maybe that when he asked her to come with the royal crown, he was really thinking that she would come with only the royal crown, if you know what I mean. So being around and about in her birthday clothes. So that's a possibility. And she does not like that idea. So she doesn't come. She says no. That's one possibility. Another is that she might have had some sort of blemish. And she did not want to go and everyone to see 
the blemish, or it could be very simple. She just does not want to be paraded around, which makes complete sense. Of course, you wouldn't want to just be, be there and you know, be paraded around for the king's glory. Gawked at. What's the answer? Well, the answer is we don't know. <laughs> we don't know why she refused, ultimately. And you know what? That is part of the point. Her reasons don't matter in the eyes of the king. That is the point. He does not care about why she did not come. The point is, is she did not come. And so, the king, who is great in his own eyes, has a problem with that because he is great in his own eyes. And so his response then is not at all surprising, surprising, is it? At this, verse 12, the king became enraged and his anger burned within him. And so his response is intense here. It's like when you, you know, when you tell a child, no, (laughs) no. If If you're a parent here, Now, just be honest, none of us are perfect parents, and even if you are, you have a child that is a sinner. (laughs) So be honest. As parents, we so often know what happens next, right? No. (laughs) What happens? Ah! Right? I mean, they cry, they fall down the ground, they stomp, and a big old thing. It's usually right in the middle of everything, right? Right in the grocery store. Like, it's not my kid. You know, just, you know, I mean, it just totally, that's what they do. A big fit. Now, in children, I mean, it is certainly sad, you know, and it's certainly a bit overwhelming to us, but in a king, when a king does this, It's not just sad. It is absolutely dangerous. Proverbs 20, verse 2, it says, The terror of a king is like the growling of a lion. Whoever provokes him to anger forfeits his life. Whether or not the king is right or wrong, whether he is good or he is wicked, That is true. Countries are shaken. Wars arise and people die because the king is angry. Now you, I know you're not a king here. And maybe, hopefully you don't think you're a king here. And we aren't kings, but really, we're not all that different from King Ahasuerus. I mean, just consider, you know, someone comes along, you know, and in front of your family, (laughs) or maybe in front of all your coworkers, maybe a banquet even, or before a group of friends, And they say something 
they do something that puts you in a bad light. Oh, that, that guy there, he's a waste. Oh, they're, they're, he's just a lazy guy. Lazy, she's lazy. A terrible worker. Or even jokes about you. Well, what happens? Boom, right? <laughs> Anger rises up within us. And where does that come from? I mean, what's going on? I mean, whether it's your, your spouse, your husband, your wife, your children, in that grocery store, maybe. I will not be defied. No one is going to step on me and my reputation. Whether it's in a grocery store, at work, in the church. I am king. And there is no other. Right? Now, we may not say that specifically in our hearts, but that's what's going on in our hearts. And these are issues of our heart. These things, they arise from within your heart and my heart. And so, as we consider this, we need to dig deep and to ask ourselves honestly, are we staking everything on our reputation? On our reputation. Now really consider your heart here. So there you are. You have your education. You have your experience. You have your position. You've been at the company for 30 years. This young whippersnapper comes along and they slight you. They challenge you. They question you. They refuse you. They insult you. So in the midst of that, at home or in public or at work or wherever you are, how dare you, right? Those things are indicators for you and for me of whose reputation we are concerned with, of whose kingdom we are aiming at in our lives. And so we need to ask that question in that moment. Are we staking everything not on God and his reputation, but on my reputation, you will not say that about me. So that's one question we would be right to ask ourselves. And then a second question, aiming at your heart, because that's what God is after, like we just sang go, here is my heart, essentially. The second question we would need to ask is simple, and it's this. Why are you angry? Why are you angry? At that moment, when you're defied, insulted, and so on, ask yourself, why are you angry? You know, it makes me think 
of the question that God, he asks Cain in Genesis chapter 4. And what did he ask Cain there in four, Genesis 4, 6-7? Why are you angry, Cain? And why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Now what happened there in Genesis 4? Well, Cain's offering, of course, as you know, was not accepted. And Abel's was, but it was more than that. It wasn't just about offerings. His offering was all wrong. He was all wrong. He was about the wrong things. Who was he about? Gathering all these things. Maybe that's how you work. Maybe you're working right now thinking, oh, well, my boss, when they know what I did, man, they're going to they're gonna say, good job. And that's what I'm working for. You know? Oh, when... When the leaders at Haven Baptist Church, when Pastor Andrew sees what I do, <laughs> he'll say, good job. That's, that's what I'm after, you know. That's why I serve, you know, in the children's ministry or whatever I do. That's why I'm serving. And so somebody will recognize how great I am. And so you see that Cain, he was about the wrong thing. Not about God. And Abel was about God and pleasing him. Here is my offering to glorify you, O God. And there it is that we find the rub and that we find our answer, don't we? Are we really angry because someone has defied God? Or are we angry because they have defied us? We don't like what someone said or did to us. As we consider anger and how dangerous it is, we need to consider how slippery it is. And how often it is anything but righteous. I mean, in that moment, and I know every one of you could say that you know this by experience. Nearly always, anger always seems justified at that moment, right? Right? I mean, there you are. And, you, you know, you're there and you're saying, show them how wrong they were to cross you. Show them the gravity of their actions. Do they know who they are dealing with here? And we feel right to show them that they are wrong. Am I right? Is that not the way we feel? And then we come back afterwards and like, oh my. I was so incredibly wrong in what I said and what I did. I sinned against God and man. Right? How dangerous our anger and our pride can be. It will thrash, 
it will hold people captive, it will enslave others, and it will demand everything from others. We forget, like the king here, that Vashti or whoever it is that we're angry with, that they are not ours. God, he made them, and he did not make them ultimately for you, did he? Who did he make them for? He made them for himself, for his glory, for the enjoyment and for the praise of God. And so this is not a mild concern. Consider your heart here. Why not be wronged? Why not forbear? Why not remember Christ and how he treated you and how did he treat you? He died for you and for your sin. Though you never deserved it. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God and Christ forgave you. That is where our hearts are to be. When that anger rises up within your heart, when you are recognizing that you are about your reputation instead of God's reputation, you need to remember Jesus Christ and him crucified and that he paid the penalty for your sin and how he treated you. And then you go and treat others likewise by the power of the Spirit of God. And that is how we are to be. And so then, from the king's intense anger here, we see the result of his anger. And so after his greatness was defied, we see the king's greatness defended. He will not stand for this. He must defend his honor, his reputation, and his pride. And so we meet then the king's wise men. Now see what the king doesn't do here. What does he not do? The king doesn't go to talk to his queen, does he? Oh, no, that... That would be too much, you know. Work it out in private and all, you know. Maybe that's a good idea. You know, maybe I can, you know, work through this and we can walk through this and everything will be worked out. But no, he doesn't do that. I mean, he goes to his political advisors over the kingdom about what to do about her. And so just see these things. That's not how to handle this. Yet he does. And one of his wise men, Mamukin, he speaks up. And he takes the king's concern and he heightens it. Not only, he says, has the king's honor been stomped upon, but the people's honor 
has been stomped upon. Husband's honor has been thrown in the dust. And so his, his counsel then is simple. Get rid of her and tell everyone about it. <laughs> so verse 19. If it please the king, let a royal order go out from him. And let it be written among the laws of the Persians and the Medes so that it may not be repealed that Vashti is never again to come before King Ahasuerus. And let the king give her royal position to another who is better than she. And so the king likes this advice as he would. And so we then have the king's edict, which is not surprising. I will be honored. That's it. That's his edict. No, for the sake of his name, he does everything that he can to defend his honor. Now, it's, it's framed this way, being about his honor and the honor of husbands throughout the land. But make no mistake, it is about him. And really him only. And so this family squabble will become... A kingdom-wide concern. And he even has it written in the people's own language. Just incredible. This, this little thing become a kingdom-wide thing. You know, one commentator says of all this, Xerxes or Hazarus, as we quickly learn, is weak-willed, fickle, and self-centered. He and his advisors are a twittery, silly-headed, cowardly lot who need to hide behind a law to reinforce their status in their homes. Right. <laughs> so much for all the Esther movies we've seen, right, of King Ahasuerus. You know, all the love story that we have there. And oh, how King Ahasuerus. He really wasn't that great of a guy. <laughs> So even more than all that, by doing this, he's making sure that everyone in the kingdom now knows that this happened. Now, they may not have known that the queen did this, but now everybody knows this. And now not only know it, but they know it in their own language. You know? So everywhere. You see the humor here? He's like not getting it. Like you didn't want it to be a big deal. Now it is a massive big deal like for everybody. So in view of all these things, and the king and all these things, what then should we think? What should we think about all of this? Well, first, grieve over this. Grieve over this. Grieve because it's evil, what he's doing. It's wicked, it's extreme. To defend his pride, the king gladly lays low his queen. He humil humiliates her, he disdains her, and he disgraces her all for the sake of his pride. We would be right to ask, is this how we are to treat people made in the image of God? Whether you're a king or not. This is a display of our fallenness. And note what I said there. I didn't say his fallenness. I said 
our fallenness. This should humble us. Lord, I am this way. Lord, we are this way. We so often demean one another, tear one another apart. We hurt one another. We slander one another. We defend ourselves, all the while forgetting. These are all people that God has made. We do that at work. We do that with our husband or wife. We do that with our children. We do that in the church. So this should prick our hearts. Lord, forgive me for treating people like this. We also need to see and say clearly that this is not how a husband should treat his wife. This is not how a husband should treat his wife across the board. We're glimpsing Adam again here. I don't know if you saw that. So remember Genesis 3? As God, he goes to Adam after he sinned. And what does Adam do? (laughs) He throws his wife immediately under the bus, right? (laughs) Yeah. Oh, no, 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 it wasn't me. Go get her, God. You know, curse her. You know, let her be undone. Don't blame me. I'm just a bystander, you know. Don't hold me accountable. It was her. When he should have been laying down his life for his wife. He blamed her for everything. When he should have killed that serpent right then and there, even if it killed him. He should have done it, but he didn't. And King Hazarus doesn't do it either. So this is Genesis 3, fallen, sinful behavior. And as we see all this, and you hear all these things, Lest we miss the big picture here, we need to see also and say that this is about what God is doing. That's incredible. This is about what God is doing. All of this is. That's the point in having this in our Bibles. It's setting up what happens Next in the book of Esther, all of these things are not outside of God's view. In his sovereignty, without conflict, and man's responsibility, without conflict, God is providentially working to bring about his plans for his glory here. God knows what lies ahead. He knows what King Hazarus is doing. He knows about the wise men. He knows about their counsel. And he is mysteriously, sovereignly working everything out to bring about his purposes. Even with the king of Hazarus, even with wise men doing evil, even with Haman, who will come very soon. What may seem inconsequential is not inconsequential at all. 
God is bringing about his plans and will here and now with all this stuff going on in our world today. And this points away then from this king, doesn't it? It points us away from King Ahasuerus. And this points to the king who is worthy. The king who is worthy of all praise, glory, and adoration, yet came to serve and to save us. That king, Jesus, made everything. He reigns and rules over everything. He is worthy of all glory, praise, and exaltation. Yet, what did he do for sinful, fallen people? Like you and me. He came and he took off his robes and he served, even washing our feet. And he would come and he would come and lay down his life and die for his bride. You want to know what you should look like, it's not King Ahasuerus. It is Jesus, humble, gentle, lowly, sacrificial. Husbands, how should you treat your bride? Ephesians 5.25 Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. That he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way husbands should love their wives as their own bodies, He who loves his wife loves himself. Is that what you're doing, husband? This is what we are to look like. Not King Hazarus. You are to go and lay down your life for your bride. That's what it looks like in your marriage. That's what it looks like to serve and love and lead your family. To walk in the way of Christ. Our king is the kind that shows mercy to sinners. And he humbles the proud. He is our example. He is the one who is worthy of glory, honor, and power. He came to save and to serve. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. 
He's no fickle, cowardly king. He is our king. Our king humbled himself. He died. He was buried. He rose again. He gave himself for us. So we are to be like him. We are to love like him. We are to lay down our lives like him. And so may we. May you. May we worship, trust in, and be like our King. And so as we see all these things, ask yourself, whose kingdom are you living for? Whose reputation are you defending? Whose reputation are you protecting and lifting up? How might you and I not be like King Ahasuerus or be like our sinful self, but be like our King Jesus Christ? Or maybe it is that you need to ask yourself this morning, do you know this King who came and died on the cross and rose from the dead to save you. And it's our prayer that you would. Let's pray together. (laughs) O Lord, you are King. May you be our King this morning, if there is anyone here who does not know Christ, they would see that though you are great and infinitely transcendent, you condescended and became imminent for us. You took on flesh and came and dwelt among us and died, lived and died for our sins that we may know God. And so if there's any here who do not know you this morning, we pray that they would confess, believe, and repent and look to Christ the King. And help us, Lord, to do as we have heard this morning and examine our own hearts. The King of endless worth, may you help us to worship you and make much of your kingdom and your glory and your praise. Sanctify us. Sanctify your church. May you help us as we respond. In Jesus' name, amen.